Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. And I am so happy to have on the line with me for the hour, the consumer advocate, lawyer, the guy who kicked off the consumer protection movement back in the 1960s, unsafe at any speed. The guy who was cited by Lewis Powell in the Powell Memo in 1971 as, along with Rachel Carson, one of the two people who was going to destroy the American free enterprise system. Right, right. And thus justified 50, 60 years now, 50 years now of right-wing neo-fascism. The guy who was cited by Lewis Powell in this, Ralph Nader, his latest book, his next to the latest book, Wrecking America, How Trump's Lawbreaking and Lies Betray All. His latest book is The Nader Family Cookbook. It's something that I'm looking forward to getting a copy of. I have one on order. He's the founder of numerous organizations, including the Center for the Study of Responsive Law and Public Interest Research Groups, which have now spread to states all over the country. And he has a radio show, the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, and a podcast, which I subscribe to. It's weekly. It's really worth listening to. Nader.org is the website. His Twitter handle is at Ralph Nader. Ralph Nader, welcome back to the program. It's been too long since you've been on, my friend. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, it's delightful. Thank you for joining with us and speaking with your listeners all over the country. Ralph, I really appreciated your writing the foreword for my new book, The Hidden History of Monopolies, you know, how big business destroyed the American dream. And I want to dig into that. But before we get to that, and I'm also curious about your cookbook, but I want to start out with Donald Trump. We have this crisis in America. We have around 650 hours, (laughs) more or less, until Donald Trump leaves. And in these 30 days, he could do, he is doing extraordinary damage, not just the obvious damage, but also the cultural and dissing democracy basically all around the world. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on the end of the Trump presidency here. Well, he's going to uh, engage Tom in, in real wreckage. He knows that he has to leave on January 20th. But until then, he's president of the United States. And so he is rapidly pouring out leases to companies, minerals, offshore in Alaska, elsewhere, timber, lithium mines, etc. He's speeding up that. 
He's speeding up all kinds of corporate welfare or crony capitalism, as conservatives call it, handouts, giveaways, subsidies. He's increasing the dismantlement of health and safety protections, which he never liked. He calls it overregulation, but uh, I call it law and order for corporate polluters and corporate crime, cheating consumers, workers, and filling the environment with toxics that could be prevented easily. So he's dismantling that, and he's so rabid in it that he's pushing out his own loyalists, people who are heads of agencies and departments, because they're not automatic enough. And so he's pushing out Bill Barr, the toady attorney general, because Bill Barr wouldn't uh, prosecute uh, Joe Biden. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's hard to make this up. Uh, and uh, he, he wouldn't appoint a special counsel to go after Hunter Biden. Uh, Trump was too much even for Bill Barr, who's leaving on Christmas Day. And so he's putting in these robotic fanatics to get the period from the election to January 20th to do his bidding. Now, the tragedy is he's violating laws with impunity. Where are the law enforcers? Well, they're the Justice Department. He controls the Justice Department. But there's an, another law enforcement, and that is the U.S. Congress. Now, he controls the Senate with the Republicans, but that's no reason why the House Democrats don't have immediate hearings, subpoena information, educate the public about this corporate crime wave or this Trump crime wave in the executive branch of government. I'm totally with you there, and I would love to see that happening. And I know that there are a couple of committees and subcommittees that are starting to look into these things, although Congress is somewhat crippled by the coronavirus. But um, I, I want the Democratic Party to get a damn spine, too. I'm wondering how you think once Trump is gone, we should best deal with this. I mean, we have the precedent of the 9-11 Commission. We have the precedent of the Church Committee and their investigations. But in retrospect, Richard Nixon's crimes are paltry, petty, small compared to a third of a million dead Americans, the reputation of the country in ruins around the world, the damage to the very idea of democracy. What should we do? Well, uh, the, the attorney general under Joe Biden sworn to uphold the Constitution and the rule of law and establish a special counsel with staff to investigate the evidence, which is overwhelming, that Trump has violated a number of criminal laws, never mind violating constitutional provisions. There's really no sanction for that other than impeachment and conviction in the Senate. And that'll be gone once he's gone. But the Justice Department was ready to prosecute Richard Nixon for obstruction of justice before Gerald Ford, President Gerald Ford, pardoned Richard Nixon. And as you say, what Nixon did, Nixon was about to be impeached and convicted for resisting one subpoena and one count of obstruction of justice. And Trump has done hundreds, hundreds of this. He's, he has defied well over 130 subpoenas, demands for testimony in the dozens by his nominees, done all kinds of maneuvers, violating the Anti-Deficiency Act by appropriating money from one purpose to another that was not approved by Congress. That's seizing the power of the purse. That's pretty serious seizure of constitutional authority, according to our founding fathers. He violated the Hatch Act by using federal property and ordering federal employees to advance his political interests, having campaigns right on the White House property. That was never done 
by prior presidents. There are a lot of statutory criminal violations that he could be prosecuted for. The president does not become immune from prosecution after a president leaves office. And then there's the all the corruption that's going on and who gets the stimulus funds, who gets the relief money. Well, it's not small business as much as the big companies, and lots of ordinary people are being left out, and all his cronies and lobbyists are moving all over Congress in the last few weeks, trying to get their piece of that pie. Even the domestic Israeli lobby got $500 million from the relief, COVID Relief Act, $500 million bucks. This is a country that is a military, economic, and technological superpower, Israel. They have universal health insurance. They have better retirement benefits than we are. What are we doing with some members of Congress putting a half a billion dollar goodies to the Israeli government? That doesn't smell pass the smell test. And other corruption domestically, with corporations getting a piece of this relief stimulus bill, and then giving their executives bonuses. They're giving their executives bonuses while they're taking relief money. So all that is, could be part of the special counsel attached to the Justice Department. Yeah, spot on. This is the Tom Hartman Program. A true American icon is our guest, Ralph Nader. So, Ralph, tell us about the Ralph Nader family cookbook. (laughs) Your family is from Lebanon, and I love Lebanese food. And I, I think a lot of people don't know about this. Well, you know, years ago, Tom, I was uh, very prominent in pushing for meat and poultry inspection laws, federal, Congress, labeling on food packages so consumers can know what's in them in terms of salt, sugar, fat, other ingredients, uh, additives. People would say, well, what do you eat? And, you know, I'd mumble something about, well, uh, hummus or something. Well, in those days, they didn't know what hummus was. Now it's, you know, all over the place. So I realized in the COVID-19 time, people are spending more time in the kitchen. They're spending more time cooking. Many of them were growing gardens during the summer to get uh, vegetables and fruits. And so I thought it would be a good time to put out this cookbook. And I don't take any credit for it. It's basically mostly my mother's recipes and, and how she used food at the at the dinner table to educate us, first training us never to whine about the food because whatever our parents ate, we ate, and whatever we ate, our parents ate. And so I know a lot of parents would love to have their kids not whine about the food and demand sweet sugar food and sugar sodas and not eat nutritious fruits and vegetables. And so I wrote an introduction explaining how my mother took food at the table to start all kinds of conversations about agriculture, where the food comes from, how it's prepared, the difference between delicious food and nutritious food. She thought there wasn't that much difference. How companies try to uh, seduce young kids and, uh, you know, into a life of sugar, salt, and fat. She was very early on about that. And she summed it up once when I did rebel. At age eight, I didn't want a dish of fresh celery, radishes, and uh, carrots 
I don't want those. I don't. She said, why, Ralph? Why, Ralph? Why don't you want those? She always wanted me to give a reason. And I wouldn't give a reason. I said, I don't like them. I don't like them. And she said, well, who's I? And I said, I? I? It, it, I is Ralph. What do you mean? And she said, I don't know. Maybe maybe you, when you say, I don't like, maybe I is uh, your liver, your kidney, your... What is I? And I was totally flummoxed. They said, I think I know who I is, Ralph. I is your tongue. And stop turning your tongue against your brain. Well, I never forgot that. Wow. I mean, so wow. that's what this cookbook uh, has, some of these gems. Uh, so many parents have such good judgment, and it's just lost to history. We try to encourage parents to keep the wise sayings of their parents and grandparents and youngsters taping their grandparents reminisces and advice and experience. So this book is not just wonderful, nutritious recipes with materials that you can get in stores all over the country, very inexpensive and very available. That is absolutely spectacular. I'm looking forward to my copy when it arrives. The Ralph Nader Family Cookbook. Parents today have real struggles trying to get their children to eat nutritious food because the fast food companies, I mean, these kids are exposed on television ads and everywhere possible to eat food with high sugar, high salt, high fat. And that has increased the obesity epidemic. There are about 33% of all kids today are declared obese, and 60% are either obese or underweight. And so how do parents protect their children from these electronic child molesters putting these ads on TV and other ways seduce these kids into simply uh, accepting food on the criteria of whether it tastes good? And uh, never mind what it does when you swallow it to your young body and increase the likelihood of diabetes and high blood pressure later and other diseases. And so my mother uh, made it very clear that nutritious food is delicious. It's natural food. She never uh, used processed food. She cooked from scratch. Uh, my parents had a restaurant, and we could get food by the bushel uh, that was fresh from the local farms. And she taught us that we couldn't demand food just because it tastes good. The question was, is it good for you? And she said, you yeah. want to be a fast runner, Ralph? Eat up. <laughs> there you go. There you go. It was brilliant. The risk of sounding like I'm promoting my book, I'm really, as much as I, you know, why not? But, I, but that, I'm not really trying to promote my book, uh, The Hidden History of Monopolies, here as much as the idea that the average American family, the average American has no idea how badly they're being ripped off by corporate America. I point out in the book, the average family is paying $5,000 a year more than families do in any other developed country for everything from cell phone service to airlines to pharmaceuticals to medical services to hotels. I mean, you just name it. Speak to this issue of monopoly, how there's basically not an industry left in America that, that isn't 80% or more dominated by five or fewer companies. Well, for, you may not want to promote your book, but I've said your book, this paperback book by Tom Hartman, is the best explanation of how monopolies affect your daily lives where you live, work, and raise your families that I've ever read. Because uh, monopolies are often written by academic professors, law professors, economists, and very hard to understand. And they're too abstract. 
And the camouflage of monopolies in the marketplace where you shop people is market fundamentalism. They try to tell you it's a free market. It's a competitive market. And anything you get, you get because the market renders a judgment that reflects your purchasing choices. Well, let's see. <laughs> uh, where do we start? Uh, I wonder what we kind of choice people have with, uh, with uh, Facebook and Google. <laughs> I wonder what kind of choice people have with monopoly uh, drugs, medicines, uh, under 18 or more years of monopoly, and then they extend it by going to Congress and lo- extending the monopoly of the particular medicine so they can charge you a monopoly price. And, you know, your book has example after example of where there is no free market. There are monopolies and shared monopolies, like uh, there are fewer giant drug companies. There are fewer giant hospital chains. There are fewer giant communication media conglomerates than ever before. And the fewer they are, the more they sort of parallel each other instead of compete with each other. And if they do find competition, they buy up the competition. Instead of trying to increase the consumers for their superior services, they buy consumers of other companies. And uh, I remember in the airline industry, well, we were pushing for deregulation of the airline industry about 40 years ago because uh, prices were very high and they didn't allow any new airlines to come in. We just had six or so, seven major airlines. And I said uh, before Congress, yes, I I would want deregulation to allow more competition, more routes, more uh, fair competition, but you have to enforce the anti-monopoly laws and the safety laws. Well, fast forward up until 10 years ago, there were 32 mergers submitted by airlines merging with each other before the Justice Department. 32 mergers were approved. And so we're back now to fewer giant airlines than we were before deregulation. So monopoly is relentless. It's almost like a, a giant magnet. The lust to monopolize reflects the corporate demand to control the situation. They want predictability, not through merit, but through sheer economic power and their influence in Washington. Almost the dictionary definition of monopoly is a system that excludes competition. Is that a good summary? Exactly. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, the two N's, or enter the code Hartman, the two N's, before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity, and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. 
Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, with two N's, or enter the code Hartman, the two N's, before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. It's a privilege to spend an hour with one of my heroes, my, literally one of my lifelong heroes, the smartest man I know, Ralph Nader. Ralph, I, I wanted to, to get into privacy with you. This idea that privacy, I was talking with a fellow about, why isn't the word privacy in the Fourth Amendment? And I pointed out that if you go back to the late 1700s, the word privacy was the code word for, I need to use the toilet. You would say, excuse me, I need some privacy, which meant you were going to go use, use the bathroom. And in fact, toilets were referred to as privies, thus the word privacy. Privilege, I mean, all of these words came out of this uh, in, in various ways, this idea of toilet functions. You know, I mean, it wasn't until the 1800s that Thomas Crapper invented the modern toilet and we kind of changed our language. And so had they used the word privacy back then, it would have had a completely different meaning. But the idea of privacy is embedded in several places in our Constitution, most notably the Fourth Amendment. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are in the modern era, given both the Internet and all the things that have spawned from that, and then going back to after 9-11 and the Patriot Act and all these other things, we have these kind of two buckets of government invading privacy and corporations invading privacy. And how essential is privacy to a functioning democracy? I think you could argue if the founders had not been able to conspire against the British in private, then we wouldn't have had an American revolution. But on the other hand, if there's a Tim McVeigh out there who's conspiring to blow up another federal building, I actually want the FBI to be, you know, snooping on him. So how do we, you know, I realize it's a huge topic and I just threw a lot of stuff at you, but I'm, I'm really curious your thoughts on this subject. Well, it is a huge topic. When I wrote my first article on invasion of privacy by credit card companies for the Ladies Home Journal back many years ago, I didn't like the word privacy. You know, it has a tone of indulgence, of being too sensitive. It's basically invasion of yourself by an external force. And when you look at it as invasion of your own personal information, your own personal behavior, your own personal thoughts. It becomes a cardinal pillar of human freedom. Because if outside forces knew everything about you, they could control you in every conceivable way. That's why dictatorships want to snoop on you and have spies and have people infiltrating citizen groups and various places. So I don't I like the word privacy. I think we really have trouble with words that don't describe the enormity of the issue. Now, as you know, because you are a major historian on corporate power and American history, Tom, in the late 
19th century, two law professors, Professor Louis Brandeis and Professor Warren of Harvard, wrote an article in the law journal declaring that the right of privacy was based in our Constitution. Well, of course, they could go to the Fourth Amendment, the protection against the police seizing and searching your premises or your business without a judicial warrant. So it's built right into the Fourth Amendment. From then on, the courts began taking account. Now, when I challenged General Motors in the 1960s, what did General Motors do? Instead of responding to my charges that they were building unsafe cars without seatbelts, without padding, not very good brakes, not very good tires compared to European cars at that time, no, they hired private detectives to get dirt on me. In other words, invade myself to find out what my personal habits were, who I associated with. All this is public record because there was a big Senate hearing chaired by Senator Ribicoff on this in the 1960s. It did actually create such a hullabaloo among the media that it helped get through the motor vehicle and highway safety laws, which irregularly enforced, nevertheless have averted over 4 million deaths in this country. A lot safer motor vehicles on the highway. So what did GM do? They wanted to invade my privacy with private detectives. So one of the pillars of human freedom is the law protecting individuals, no matter what political label or where they come from, from being exposed to personal information that's none of anyone else's business. Now, I know that there are some people who say, who cares what Facebook knows about me? I'll give Facebook all kinds of information, Google all kinds of information, Instagram all kinds of information. I haven't done anything wrong, so I don't care about that. So I don't care whether you regulate these uh, Silicon Valley companies that are now worldwide. And my answer is, oh, yes, you do. You may not have done anything wrong, but don't you care about what you said to your clergyman? about a personal problem to your physician, about your child's problem? Don't you care about what you confided to a neighbor about a certain episode that gave you great anxiety? Well, suddenly they say, yeah, yeah. Well, that's why your right of privacy has to be protected because the more people know about you who have no business knowing all these things about you, the more they control you, they can manipulate you, they can intimidate you. They can daunt you. Uh, They can keep you from uh, taking important initiatives. They can keep you from standing tall and speaking up at a town meeting. It's far too serious a problem, Tom, to call it privacy. What would you call it? Invasion of the self. Wow. It's taking away uh, information and making it public that's none of your business, whether you're a government agency or a corporation. Now, you point out an important nuance. There are times there's criminality, whether it's street crime or corporate crime, when the government has to know things. They have to be able to stop something devastating, like you mentioned Timothy McVeigh. But that's what the law is all about. It's to draw lines, draw boundaries, create balances. The other aspect is corporations now invade the self of their consumers and workers like never before. 
and this is a very serious problem of control by corporations over workers and over the South. There are companies in this country, Tom, where workers are exposed, like in laboratories for chemical companies or drug companies, and they have those exposures collected in a file with their name on it by the company that employs them, and they can't get access to their file to find out whether they have been harmed or whether the risk level of getting cancer or respiratory diseases is, is, is such that you need treatment. So you see, it has very serious consequences. And, of course, these credit card companies, and they know everything about you more than you know about your own buying habits because you can't remember everything. And then so you buy something and you take it home. Before you know it, you ter- turn on your phone. You're being promoted for buying this, this, this automatically, instantly, harassed constantly. And so people's tranquility are invaded. That's another invasion of the self. All the robocalls, 40 billion robocalls, undesired in one year, this country, with the Federal Trade Commission and Federal Communications Commission not hammering the communications companies to do something about it. 40 billion. That means people often rush for the phone. They can trip. They can fall. They can refuse to take calls because they think it's a robocall, but it's really a serious telephone call. So even telephone conversations being pushed aside by this constant robocall invasion of people's personal space. Have I made a case? Yeah, I think so. And if you're using one of these VoIP phones like the cable companies are now offering as kind of freebies with your cable package, I'm pretty sure they're not protected under common carrier laws. They can literally listen to everything you're saying. Or am I wrong? No, you're not wrong. These laws are not being enforced. For example, when the government, with these elaborate algorithms, snoops on everybody in the country, as the NSA has, because, you know, they've got the technology and they just go, they got more data than they can even begin to analyze. It pours in every day. That's a violation of the FISA Act, which is a criminal statute, not just of the Fourth Amendment. And then we, we haven't begun to talk about Alexa, which while you're sleeping is feeding personal information about you to various outlets all over the world. I've been reading a book, it's called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism by Shoshana Zuboff. And the main premise of the 600 page book of hers is that the business model of, in particularly Facebook and Google, but increasingly other companies as well, Rather than just saying, okay, we know what Ralph buys because we know what he's purchased through us. We know what he has searched for because he uses our search engine. We know what his preferences are because of his posting on Facebook. Instead of just selling information about you, they have now gone into the business of saying, okay, here is this person's psychological and emotional and familial profile. And so here are the pressure points that can be used to alter this person's behavior, whether it's altering their behavior in terms of purchasing things, which arguably is what advertising has always been about. But this goes way beyond advertising. This is altering people's behavior at a level that's way below conscious realization or altering their behavior politically. And, you know, one of the biggest examples of this is the way that Facebook basically helped Donald Trump become president and almost got him reelected. I had never, before I read this book, had never realized that their business model is no longer just selling our data. In fact, in many cases, they're refusing to sell our data now. Instead, they're saying, 
if you want 100,000 people that you can turn from Democrats into Republicans, we have them. Give us money. You're not going to know who these people are, but we do. Or if you want people to be out in the streets protesting lockdowns, we know who the people are who would be vulnerable to that message. Give us the money. What are your thoughts on that? That's big corporate brother in action. Uh, I uh, had Shoshona on my radio program. It may be a 600-page book, but boy, it's hard to put down. It's so gripping and so clearly it is. written. It's a new frontier of corporate domination of our lives. About 20 years ago, Business Week had a cover story where they did a survey of the American people and asked one question. Do corporations have too much control over your lives? 71% said yes. And that was before all the scandals in the next 20 years and the Wall Street somersault and depression of our economy and the corporate crime wave. So it's, it's conservatives and liberals think corporations have too much control. But that's not stopping these companies. They just are putting uh, the yoke of arrogant algorithms all over, all over us. And there's no organization, no consumer groups really specializing in resistance here. And our government, I mean, they hardly know how to use technical language to ask questions of Zuckerberg and others when they come up to testify for Congress. And they laugh at them. I mean, they huff and puff the senators and representatives for the cameras at the hearings. But nothing happens. Now, there have been some antitrust suits filed. But these companies have to be broken up by legislation. They can drag on the courts for 20 years. They have to be broken up by legislation in Congress, just the way the electric utility combines were broken up under the Public Utility Act in the 1930s. So, yeah, you're right. It's turning from just getting information and selling something to altering people's behavior and evaluations. They can slander and ruin the reputation of political candidates, for example, with unknown hands. Right. And they do it. How do we deal with this? I realize that there's a monopoly aspect to this, but even if you break up, even if you said to Facebook, you can no longer own Instagram and you can no longer buy your competitors, they still have the algorithm and they still have, you know, all these customers that they can sell their ability to alter our behavior. What do we do about that? How best should we intervene? It's quite simple. Facebook and Google make their money in two ways. People give them information free, They turn around and sell the information to advertisers. The advertisers pay Google and Facebook billions of dollars. So the strategy of regular Americans should be, do not give information to Facebook and Google free. Start, first of all, curtailing what you give. Some of these kids give everything. You know, they just open their entire lives to teenagers and so forth. Comes back to haunt them later. But demand that you be paid for the information. Those are assets. Those are the principal assets of Facebook and Google. Over 80% of their profits come from these advertising revenues. So demand that they pay you for the information you give them, which they turn into profitable inventory and selling it to advertisers. And who, who knows who else who have less than commercial interests in mind, they have other nefarious interests in mind. The second is to start listing these advertisers and say you're not going to buy anything from them. 
just have a, a rogues gallery of these advertisers. I once had an advertising executive tell me that any rebellion by consumers that might reduce the sale of a product as little as 4% changes the policy of the company and responds to the demands hmm. of the consumers. Just 4%. So with all the Internet, people can start their own rogues gallery. Uh, we're not going to buy any ads from all these advertisers. And we're not going to give you information to, unless you charge for it. And then it becomes a political movement. For heaven's sake, use the Internet for, for your own interest for once. Don't use the Internet to surrender your, your own self and your own personal information to, for these companies to make tons of money and you don't get any part of it. It's sort of like a right of property over your own personal information. Well, there's there's another business model too. I back in the '80s, uh, Nigel Peacock and I, and Nigel still works with us. Uh, he's been one of my closest friends and, and business colleagues for decades and decades. And back in the 1980s, we ran a bunch of forums on CompuServe. Now that was the internet back then, and CompuServe was not running ads. They weren't selling ads. Instead, they charged everybody ten dollars a month to be on CompuServe. If Facebook were to turn around and say, okay, we're going to stop spying on you, we're going to stop collecting your data, and we're going to stop selling your data, and we're going to stop selling advertising, but if you want to be on Facebook, you have to pay us 10 bucks a month or $2 a month or a dollar a month or whatever, and, and maybe there's a provision for low-income people, something like that. Going to a fee-for-services model instead of a, a creepy, we're going to spy on you model seems viable. Is, is that something that we should be considering? Well, yeah, in the sense that it gives a, a more of a consensus right to the consumer. But there are little competitors, I, I understand. I don't mess with this stuff. Too much time-consuming to fool around with these uh, Facebook types and so on. I want to get something done every day. But I am told that there are small, quote, competitors to Facebook where they want to develop these kinds of models, a subscription model, or they want to be able to pay you for your assets, personal information, that is. Think about that. You know where this is going, Tom, with facial recognition technology. They can basically get you in a lot of trouble where they put you in a situation where you never were, and then they accuse you hmm. of, of criminal behavior or of associating with bad people. There's no end now to this accelerating manipulation of human beings by the corporate supremacists and their government allies. And that's why I call for a left-right unity against this, because once Congress is confronted by people who walk into a senator's office and say, well, some of us are liberals, some of us are conservatives, but we both want you to do this and that, uh, it becomes an unstoppable political movement. And the rulers that be have learned from 2,000 years of experience to divide and rule us. Trump does that very proficiently. But all the charlatan politicians divide and rule, and they keep creating things that allegedly divide us. But there are so many ways that we are unified. We want a living wage. We want universal health insurance. We want crackdown on corporate crime. We want a fair taxes. And we want to rebuild our public works and infrastructures. We want decent schools, clean air, clean water. I put out 25 areas where liberals and conservatives are overwhelmingly supportive in my book, Unstoppable, the Emerging Left-Right Alliance 
to dismantle the corporate state. And that's what the citizen movement should do now. Otherwise, they're going to be carved up ideologically, geographically, red state, blue state, conservative, liberal, fighting each other while the corporations reap the spoils and keep exporting jobs abroad. It's an absolutely brilliant analysis, Ralph, and, and uh, we've, got, we've got so much work to do. Ralph Nader, uh, his new book, The Ralph Nader Family Cookbook, he does a brilliant podcast, The Ralph Nader Radio Hour, as well as a radio show. You can track it down over at nader.org, and you can tweet him at Ralph Nader. Ralph, thanks so much for dropping by today. It's been great talking with you. Well, thank you, listeners, and uh, thank you, Tom, for your books, especially the latest one on monopolies. Thank you, Ralph, and happy holidays to you. Tim in Aloha, Oregon. Hey, Tim, what's on your mind today? Yeah, you know, I was watching your interview with Ralph Nader, and, you know, the guy's admiral things he's done for the last 50 or 60 years, but there's one question that I would love to have asked him, whether he think the world would be a better place today if Gore would have been elected instead of Bush in 2000. What do you think he'd say to that? I think he would say that uh, if... George Bush's brother Jeb hadn't knocked 90,000 African Americans off the voting rolls in Florida, Al Gore would have been elected. Yeah, but you know, there was, that, there was always that controversy on whether he really gave a rap. I know, I think it's a phony controversy. Yeah, and, but and you I, know, you know and I'm, not, I'm not going to hold that against Ralph. I'm, I'm, I've moved on. Marilyn in Sun City, West Arizona. Hey, Marilyn, what's up? You know, the will of the people hasn't mattered in years. In 2000 and 2016, it didn't matter who won the popular vote. It's all down to the Electoral College. So in this instance, even if they were to find a million fraudulent votes, does it really matter? Because once the Electoral College speaks, they have spoken. Even if there were 5 million fraudulent votes, it's the Electoral College that will decide. Am I not right? Yes. In a super technical way, you're very right, because the Constitution basically says that each state can decide how their electors will vote. Corollary to that is they can decide who their electors will vote for if they choose to, which Florida almost did in the 2000 election when the recount looked like it was going to go for Al Gore. And it turned out that the recount would have put Al Gore in the White House but got stopped by the Supreme Court. So we don't really um, have to be that concerned because the Electoral College, especially Well, after we should January always be concerned 6th, about the integrity has, of our vote. Correct. But the, once the Electoral College speaks on, a, on January the 6th, if a week later they come up with a million fraudulent votes, does it matter? Well, it could cause states to reconsider. I mean, they're not going to find those fraudulent votes. I don't want to be in the business of saying voter fraud or election fraud doesn't matter. Voter fraud is pretty much non-existent. One guy in Pennsylvania voting his dead mother. I mean, that's how rare it is. Election fraud, on the other hand, what Trump is trying to do is widespread. Marilyn, thank you. On the line with us is Evan Greer, the deputy director of Fight for the Future. Fight for the Future has been working on net neutrality in a huge way. Evan has been a guest on our program many times. Fightforthefuture.org is their website. Uh, the Twitter handle is Fight for the FTR. 
Ajit Pai has just announced that he's on his way out. The, the commissioner of the FCC that Trump put in the top job, guy who kind of shepherded through the end of net neutrality so that right now Comcast Corporation wants to know everything I do on the Internet, every email I send, every uh, online transaction I engage in. They have access to all that information and they can even sell it, I believe, without my knowledge. I, in, and uh, please correct me if I'm wrong. Um, that what that's in part what the end of net neutrality means. Number one, give us a quick primer primer on on net neutrality and you know how how we lost it and how we might get it back. And then secondly, you know what what does the future of the FCC look like in your opinion? You're right that Ajit Pai has announced that he will be stepping down from the FCC, which certainly should be cause to celebrate. Pai was arguably perhaps one of the worst public officials in modern history, just so blatantly corrupt. And as you mentioned, perhaps his greatest policy accomplishment, if you can call it that, was repealing the net neutrality protections that millions of people from across the political spectrum fought for and won under the Obama administration. And one of my personal pet peeves is a lot of reporters will call these Obama-era rules. But the reality is we had to fight tooth and nail to get Obama's FCC chair, Tom Wheeler, who was also a former industry insider, to enact those strong rules in the first place. Now, Pi essentially blew them up, and in doing so, not only gutted those bright-line net neutrality rules, but basically kneecapped the Federal Communications Commission as an agency that can provide basic oversight of these telecom monopolies like Comcast and Verizon and AT&T. You know, the example you gave was sort of a bit about privacy, which certainly does fall under the FCC's jurisdiction in some cases, but the primary rules that we're talking about here were against companies abusing their monopoly power to slow down or block websites, pick and choose what we can see and do on the internet. Essentially, these are rules that prevent our cable company from deciding what content we can see. If Comcast, as my internet service provider, wanted to pull a Google, this is what almost killed alternate.org, you know, one of the major progressive websites. Google decided we're no longer going to include them in our searches and, uh, you know, you have to specify that site if you want to see any information from alternate. And we're no longer going to consider them news. And this was all basically because they were simply progressive. I mean, there were, to the best of my knowledge, there weren't specific examples of fake news on alternate. It so kneecapped that organization that they ended up dissolving, essentially, their original corporate structure. It was a nonprofit and selling the, the website to, to a good progressive entrepreneur. But still, you know, it killed the website. I killed their traffic. So right now, Comcast could, in my home, in the modem in my home, essentially, or, or through the modem in my home, they could say, uh, yeah, Alternet, Daily Kos, Democratic Underground. If you try to go to any of those websites, you're going to have to count to 10 before they come up. But if you go to Daily Caller or RedState.com, it will load instantly. Do I have that right? Yeah, you have that more or less right. And I think, you know, the, the examples that you're giving around sort of politically motivated censorship or suppression are certainly loom large as concerns. Uh, I think we should also always just be on the lookout for good old-fashioned corporate greed. Uh, it may be less that Comcast is deciding, all right, we're going to slow down lefty websites and speed up right-wing websites. It's more likely they're going to say, hey, anybody who doesn't give us money, you get slowed down, right? Um, so it's very much about mm. them kind of setting up toll roads on the internet, abusing their monopoly power. But again, I think it's also critical to understand how important this is right now in the middle of a pandemic, right? 
so many people are uh, working from home, sending their kids to school online. We are more vulnerable to abuse from our Internet service providers than ever before in history. And the agency that is supposed to protect us, that's supposed to work in the public interest, has been asleep at the wheel during the entire Trump administration. We now have an opportunity to finally get some basic leadership back in that agency, put them back on the beat, protecting the public from companies like Comcast and Verizon and AT&T. But unfortunately, we're seeing a cynical play from Senate Republicans who are trying to ram through the nomination of a totally unqualified staffer that was nominated by President Trump. It's an unprecedented move to try to rush through his nomination before the president leaves office. And if they succeed in doing it, basically they'll kneecap the agency at a 2-2 tie that could basically tie their hands for up, for up to two years, preventing them from undoing the damage that Pai did, preventing them from restoring net neutrality. You know, in normal times, this would be regular Republican obstructionism. During a pandemic, When people are so desperate and so vulnerable, I would argue that this is just criminal, deeply unethical. They're not owning the libs or sticking it to the Biden administration. They're just hurting working families and kids who are sitting outside of Taco Bell to try to do their homework. And I'm guessing that these Republicans are getting some substantial campaign contributions from these big Internet service providers. Have you looked into that? I'm I'm guessing a lot of that. Sure. Yeah. I mean, secrets.org. Absolutely. I mean, the reality is that these you know, big telecom companies have given money hand over fist to both major political parties, both Democrats and Republicans. Um, you know, fortunately, um, you know, thanks to the massive amount of Internet activism that we've done over the last number of years, Democrats have largely fallen in line um, in supporting uh, Title II, strong net neutrality protections. Um, Republicans in Washington, D.C. have largely continued to oppose it. But it's important to remember that with voters outside of the beltway, 80 percent of voters from across the political spectrum, including more than 75 percent of people that voted for Donald Trump, um, oppose the FCC's repeal of net neutrality. Again, if there's one thing that we can all agree on from the furthest left to the furthest right, it's that our cable and phone company shouldn't decide what we can do on our phones and on our computers. Um, that should be up to us, uh, not to those companies that connect us to the Internet. Yeah, it's it's the equivalent of back in the day if AT&T was to listen in on my conversation and say, oh, yeah, he's, he's talking to his mother. Uh, we'll charge him two cents a minute for that. Oh, he's talking to his stockbroker. Well, we'll charge him 30 cents a minute for that. Do I have that right? Yeah, more or less. Or another way to think of it is, you know, you buy a toaster, the electricity in your house will power a toaster regardless of which company you buy it from. Your electric company can't tell you, oh, you have to buy our preferred toaster. Electricity does what you want it to do. You can plug whatever you want into it. I think that's another sort of analogy here. And to quickly just say where we're at with this play in the Senate, you know, I think everybody should be contacting their senators generally, telling them to oppose this nomination of Nathan Symington uh, to uh, stack the deck at the FCC. But particularly if you live in Maine, Alaska uh, or Louisiana, your senator, Republican senators, broke ranks with their party and voted against the repeal of net neutrality. They are the most likely senators to do the right thing here, uh, break ranks with the party again, and block this nomination of Nathan Symington. So if you know anyone in Maine, Alaska, 
or uh, uh, Louisiana, encourage them to call Senator Susan Collins, Senator Lisa Murkowski, Senator Kennedy, tell them to block the nomination of Nathan Symington so the FCC can get back to work protecting the public and restoring net neutrality. You've got it, Evan. And the number to call to reach your your senator is 202-224-3121. Evan Greer, Deputy Director of Fight for the Future, fightforthefuture.org. Thank you, Evan. Great talking to you again. Thanks, Tom. Always good to chat. I agree. And keep up the great work. Deborah in Columbia, Tennessee. Hey, Deborah, thanks for watching us on YouTube. What's on your mind today? Thank you for taking my call. It finally occurred to me after having all the disinformation all over Facebook and in the news and the aggravation that I believe one of the most important pieces of legislation that should be introduced and passed is to hold any organization representing themselves as news responsible to the truth. Opinions should be stated as such up front. These institutions have been the worst source of division in our country, and we need to hold everyone to account for disinformation that is a cancer to our society. And then we should go even further and include all politicians to even stiffer monetary punishments and impeachment for lying to the American people. So what do you think? I love your sentiment. I'm, I'm completely with you. We need to clean this mess up. Here's the problem. What is truth? You know, <laughs> to quote the old, who was a Pontius Pilate, I think. If you think back to pre-1987, before Reagan did away with the Fairness Doctrine, Every radio station in the country carried news at the top and typically at the bottom as well of the hour. And every television station in America carried a half hour of local news and a half hour of national news during prime time. And those were to satisfy the requirements of the Fairness Doctrine, that these stations program in the public interest, which was widely understood to be news. But there was no agency that oversaw that. I mean, the FCC administered this, but they did not ask about the content of the news. So even if that was still in place today, and you were to say Fox News should no longer be able to call themselves news because they just make stuff up, the Trump administration would say, no, our definition, that's our definition, and we run the government right now. So we want, we think CBS and NBC are the ones who need to lose their licenses or, or you know, pay a penalty because, uh, you know, they said something that we disagree with. Once that genie is out of the bottle, how do you put it back? I mean, how, once the government starts basically censoring news and opinion or determining which is which, it seems to me like a really dangerous road to go down, Deborah. Well, there's a difference, though, in opinion and a out-and-out lie. I mean, I see out-and-out lies that can be proven uh, easily. So if we just say, oh, well, you know, there's, it's going to be too difficult to enforce, uh, let's just keep it simple. You know, at least maybe it'll put the brakes on some of these people just out-and-out lying. You know, I totally get it. And, uh, you know, it's something I try to do on this program every day is, is, number one, tell the truth. And number two, do it in a way that I can back it up. And number three, occasionally point out how the truth is not being promulgated on other networks, particularly Fox so-called news. But again, I'm, I'm just very wary of the government looking over my shoulder or anybody else's. Deborah, thank you for the call. It's, it's a thought-provoking position. And I do think that a return of the Fairness Doctrine, as weak as it was, is, is a good idea. But, you know, the news was based more on tradition 
And Mitch McConnell has taught us what Republicans and conservatives think about tradition. And there was a tradition that you give a Supreme Court appointee a chance. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Jack in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Hey, Jack. I've been listening to you, and you keep making a plea for people in the rural areas. We need to talk to them. Now, I, would, I think a really good plan would be to pressure our so-called billionaires, like Tom Steyer and Bloomberg. Why aren't they supporting progressive radio? They can help us or more television. than running for office. I agree. I wrote an entire op-ed that was an open letter to Tom Steyer asking him to buy Clear Channel when it was for sale last year. Uh, it was for sale I for $1.3 billion. I think that was yeah. more money than he had, frankly, but could have he had available. Together, he could have gotten together with other billionaires. And I'm saying that we progressives, this is who we should be using I won't call it peer pressure because I don't have that kind of money, but at least progressive pressure. I get it. Yeah, I totally get it. You know, Ralph Nader wrote a book about this back five, six, seven years ago titled Only the Super Rich Can Save Us Now. And basically that was it. You know, they've taken over the country. They've taken over many of the advanced democracies, the billionaire class. If we don't peel off some of them on our side to help save civilization, save the earth, as Mark Plotkin was just talking about, and save small d democracy, our democratic republic, Mm -hmm. we're in big trouble. You know, instead of running for trying to buy the Democratic nomination, we should be shaming. They should be shaming. Buying media. I get it. Judd in Tyler, Texas. Hey, Judd, what's on your mind today? I think what we're seeing right now is 30 years of Fox News and right wing talk radio coming home to roost. You know, by Trump's own admission, that's how we got him. And I think by his own admission, that's basically what he does all day when he's not playing golf. Not only that, but also Facebook. And you mentioned the uh, social dilemma yesterday, which I highly recommend people watching. It's extremely, it's frightening, man. It really that's the is. most shocking documentary I've seen in at least a decade. 
Absolutely, and it's not hearsay. It's from people that worked at Facebook, that worked at Twitter. Oh, and it's not just some grunt who is programming a computer. You're talking about the the former CEO of several of these really, really large social media companies. You're talking about senior, senior, not just senior management, senior executives, vice president level executives. Uh, It's mind-boggling, Judd. Hey, Tom, one more thing, man. I'll let you go. Uh, I'm sure you've read it. I believe it's Kurt Anderson, Fantasyland. So it kind of lays out a blueprint of sort of where we are right now. It's a great read. Fantasyland. That's not the story. I'm thinking of Nixon Land. Huh. I'm not familiar with that. It's a book. Yeah, it's when a did it book. come out? I believe it's been out for about three years, three or four years. Yeah, huh. I, I, I found huh. out about it through Pete Dominic. But it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful book. Yeah, I'll have to look for it. Judd, thanks a lot for the call, and thanks for, uh, thanks for your comments and thoughts. And, and yeah, I'm, I'm with you. We need to, you know, do something about all this. And, and it doesn't mean, you know, bring the government's big foot down. But we need to wake people the hell up to what's going on. Max in Clackamas, Oregon. Hey, Max, thanks for watching us on YouTube. What's up? How did you get involved in radio? I'm watching you on YouTube, and I'm, I'm a big talk radio fan, I guess. Grew up listening to, you know, all the conservative talkers uh, with my grandpa, and now I'm very privileged and grateful that I have you and several others to listen to. But yeah, I'm just curious. I, I think I've heard you mention you got you were involved with SBS, Students for Democratic Society, maybe mm-hmm. back in the day. And you've had oh, Bernie Sanders before Bernie Sanders was sort of nationally, internationally known on the air. You have all these congressional town halls like you're a big deal. How did you get there? I'm just very curious to know. Sure. Well, first of all, I learned how to do radio. When I was 16 years old, I got a, uh, a weekend job at WITL in Lansing, Michigan as the uh, weekend DJ on a country western station. I worked there on and off part time, mostly weekends for a couple of years. And then when I dropped out of college, Two years later, I started doing news every morning at WITL. Louise and I had also started a business. And so I'd go into WITL at 5 in the morning and do the news. And then at 10 a.m., I got off the air and I'd go back to East Lansing and, and Louise and I would run the business. And I did that for seven years. I did that until 1978. And then I got out of the radio business. Louise and I moved to New Hampshire and, and started a, a new adventure. So then back in 2003, we went to Michigan for Thanksgiving, and all the way there, all I could hear was right-wing talk radio, which made me crazy. So I wrote this op-ed for Common (laughs) Dreams called Talking Back to Talk Radio that said that I used to work in radio. There is a place for progressive talk radio. You can make money doing talk radio. Somebody needs to start a network. Anita and Shelley Drobny read that article, flew me into Chicago or met me in Chicago, and they put up the money to start Air America. In fact, Shelley in his book on Air America reprints my article and says this was our original business plan. When Air America went away, so I, and I started my show even before Air America in uh, March of 2003 as proof of concept. I just wanted to prove it was possible. And so it's just a matter of persistence, Max. I just keep doing the show day after day. I show up. I mean, you know, we didn't make any money off it for five or six years. We've had really lean times. We've had some good years, but uh, I'm a persistent guy. Well, that's it's really great. And, you know, I think that your show's popularity and success is beyond proof of concept and and that there is a place for progressive talk radio. And, you know, I'm, I'm lucky that I live in the Portland area. I can listen to you on X-Ray FM as well. I just yeah. want to encourage you and keep being persistent and looking forward to coming and attending one of your book signings at Powell's when we can again. So appreciate you, Tom. Right. Have a happy I'm 2021. Happy yeah. Thank you, Max, and the same to you. And 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 thanks for uh, and and thanks for your comments about X Ray FM. You know they're they're one of our nonprofit affiliates. 
that are real important to us, and it's a great station right here in Portland, but really worthy of people's support. So, Max, thank you so much. It's great to hear from you, and, you know, happy holidays, happy new year to you, too, and May 2021 heal us of the wounds of the Trump administration. been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.